My introduction to the world of criminal psychology came on a rainy Sunday afternoon when I was 15. I'd always had a bit of a morbid fascination thanks to my dad's job in criminal justice. That day, I flicked on the channel formerly known as Crime and Investigation on Foxtel, and I lost myself in a marathon of one of my favourite docuseries to date, Born to Kill. I learned of Rose West's incestuous abuse at the hands of her father that carried on with her husband's consent long into her 20s. I heard about Jeffrey Dahmer's seemingly idyllic upbringing as the portrait of a class clown. I came to grips with how two seemingly normal 10-year-old boys were able to murder and mutilate toddler Jamie Bolger with no major red flags in the lead up to their crime. A question I've pondered for years and am yet to have a firm answer to is this. Are some people born evil? If so, is there a certain brain pattern or gene we could test for, like early psychopathy, for which we could design a rehab course or some form of medication? If not, why do some children with normal, even ideal childhoods turn into killers? They don't have heavy traumas that turn them cold or grow up surrounded by pain to the point where they are desensitized. Is evil just a lack of empathy? It has to be more complex than that. Because there are many diagnosed psychopaths in the world who don't go out and hurt people. What can we do to help prevent future tragedies? Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Loon Life. Let's start with the basics. What is a psychopath? The dictionary definition is a person suffering from a chronic mental disorder with abnormal or violent social behavior. There are 20 key traits that psychologists use to diagnose this disorder. Wanna play along? Get a pen and make a line every time you hear something that you identify with. Pathological lying, glib and superficial charm, a grandiose sense of self, a need for stimulation, 
cunning and manipulative, a lack of remorse or guilt, shallow emotional response, callousness and a lack of empathy, a parasitic lifestyle, poor behavioural controls, sexual promiscuity, early behaviour problems, a lack of realistic long-term goals, impulsivity, irresponsibility, failure to accept responsibility, many short-term marital relationships, juvenile delinquency, revocation of conditional release, criminal versatility. I got five out of 20. Not exactly on my way to being a mass murderer, but definitely not as squeaky clean as I'd like. Some killers who've been diagnosed with this disorder are Jeffrey Dahmer, also known as the Milwaukee Cannibal or the Milwaukee Monster. He was an American serial killer and sex offender who committed the rape, murder and dismemberment of 17 men and boys from 1978 to 1991. Ted Bundy. He was an American serial killer and necrophile who kidnapped, raped and murdered numerous young women and girls during the 1970s. John Wayne Gacy. He was an American serial killer and rapist who sexually assaulted, tortured and murdered at least 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and 1978. Jack the Ripper. He was an unidentified serial killer, generally believed to have been active in the largely impoverished areas in and around the Whitechapel District of London in 1888. Attacks ascribed to Jack the Ripper typically involve female prostitutes who lived and worked in the slums of East End London and whose throats were cut prior to abdominal mutilations. The most notable thing about these killers is their ability to dehumanise their victims. To them, they were a lump of flesh to be dissected and explored, in some cases, devoured. But there's one more kind of serial killer. What's a sociopath? The dictionary definition is a term used to describe someone who has antisocial personality disorder, ASPD. People with ASPD can't understand others' feelings. They'll often break rules or make impulsive decisions without feeling guilty for the harm they cause. I have nine more traits for you. Ready to make your list? A lack of empathy. Difficult relationships, struggles to form emotional bonds. Manipulativeness, deceitfulness, callousness, hostility, irresponsibility, impulsivity, and risky behavior. I only got two this time, good to know. I know both of these terms seem really similar and a lot of the symptoms do cross over, let me explain the main difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. A conscience, or lack thereof. Sociopaths, those with antisocial personality disorder, 
do have the little voice in their head that tells them when they're doing something wrong. It's a much quieter voice than that in the average person, thus they find it much easier to ignore. Psychopaths do not have a conscience. Many learn to mimic behaviours associated with guilt as they get older so as not to stand out, but overall they can do whatever they wish without any feelings of guilt whatsoever. It is important to point out, however, that not all people with these disorders are violent. In fact, many of us have interacted with many people with antisocial personality disorder in our lives. Instead of violence, they will use their manipulative and reckless behaviours to get what they want. Don't go diagnosing every mean and selfish person you know, though. In summary, psychopaths are actors. They can be intelligent, charming, and good at mimicking emotions. They may pretend to be interested in you, but in reality, they probably don't care. Their sole mission is personal gain. Sociopaths are less able to play along. They make it plain that they're not interested in anybody but themselves. They often blame others and have excuses for their behaviour. So if people can be born with these disorders, does that make it true that you can be born predisposed to evil? No, because here's another spanner. Not all killers have a personality disorder. Of course, this is obvious when we take into account things like gang killings and self-defence, etc. But for this podcast, I'm focusing on the worst of all, serial killers. Outside of personal gain, killers could be motivated by grief, anger, resentment, or feeling used or mistreated. Mass killers can be men who are painfully aware of themselves as social and sexual rejects in a society that values social desirability. In a society that values achievement, they are aware of how they have fallen short and in ways that will not reverse. There have been school massacres, hate crimes, workplace killings, and even entire family killings. And in most cases, these follow fairly recent events that happened to individuals who responded in ways that led them to do what they did. They snapped. In the case of the Virginia Tech shooter, who had a history of anxiety and depressive disorders, he was involuntarily hospitalised due to his disturbing behaviour about 16 months before the 2007 shooting, in which he killed 32 people and then himself. In a world where the incel movement is only growing more traction, the divide between right and left is growing, people are backing themselves or feeling backed into corners. And what happens when you corner an animal? Fight, flight or freeze. If your mental health is on Struggle Street, we all know how hard it is to see the reality of a situation when your feelings are so raw. What if you're predisposed to violence? What if you feel like the world is out to get you? Fight. No healthy person would hurt others, that's a given. But I have learned through life that people will always justify their actions. Those of us with a conscience would destroy ourselves from the inside if we did things to hurt others without reason. It can be things as simple as, I had to cheat on my girlfriend because life is short and that other girl was a once in a lifetime opportunity and even if she doesn't forgive me then it wasn't meant to be anyway. I stole this loaf of bread at the self-serve at Woolies because it's a massive corporation and they pocket so much money from those of us living paycheck to paycheck and this isn't going to hurt anyone 
and I'm pretty desperate. I drove away from that car after hitting it because I don't have insurance and I'm struggling to get by as it is. I'm sure they have insurance. Know what I mean? We rationalize because we have to, to be at peace with ourselves. So what about when the stakes are bigger? What if it's kill or be killed? I believe it is eternally possible to turn a reasonable person into a killer. Nurture can trump nature. Let me tell you the story of Clyde Barrow, better known as half of outlaw killing couple Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde Chestnut Barrow was born in 1909. The fifth of seven children, his family were poor, but close-knit farmers. When they lost everything due to drought, the family relocated to Dallas, Texas, where Clyde attended school until the age of 16 and had aspirations of becoming a musician. He played both sax and guitar, self-taught. Sadly, under the influence of his older brother Buck, Clyde soon turned to a life of crime. Beginning with petty thievery, then graduating to stealing cars, Clyde soon escalated his activities to armed robbery. By late 1929, at the age of 20, Clyde was already a fugitive from the law, wanted by authorities for several robberies. It was in January of 1930 that Clyde met a pretty young waitress at a party. Her name was Bonnie Parker. Petite and fashionable, she quickly caught the handsome rogue's attention. They grew close over several weeks until Clyde was finally apprehended for auto theft and sent to prison. Desperate to be reunited, Clyde hatched a plan for Bonnie to smuggle a gun into the jail so he could escape. On March 11 of 1930, Clyde used the weapon to escape with his cellmates, but they were captured a week later. Clyde was then sentenced to 14 years of hard labour, eventually being transferred to Eastham State Farm. This is where the destruction of Clyde Barrow began. As most of us know, the conditions of prisons in the 1930s left much to be desired, and the men truly were living in squalor, working up to 14 hours a day, a dehumanising experience for anyone, regardless of their crime. However, the abuse Clyde suffered at the hands of a fellow inmate and the guards broke him. He was starved, beaten, and repeatedly and violently sexually assaulted on a daily basis. Clyde was so desperate to escape his torture that he severed his own toes. Finally, in self-defense, Clyde took the life of the inmate and one of his lifer friends took the blame for him. Freedom came for Clyde in the form of parole. It was at this time that he vowed to never return to jail, no matter what. Bonnie and Clyde took the lives of 13 law officials in their subsequent crime spree. Each life was taken when the pair were directly threatened, and every person they took captive to escape was later released, often with money to get them home. Clyde wasn't evil. 
but a lack of respect turned into pure hatred for law enforcement after his two-year ordeal. Clyde returned to Eastham Estate Farm only once, and this was to orchestrate one of the biggest jailbreaks in American history. Returning the favour, he released five of his inmate friends and took the life of one officer. Among the escapees was a convict known as Henry Methvin, who soon became part of the Barrow Gang. Bonnie told her family that Clyde was a different person after his prison stay, but she was as devoted to him as ever. They both dreamed of fame, but perhaps not in the form that it came. They stole enough to get by, robbing more grocery stores than banks, and were often accompanied by Clyde's older brother Buck and his wife. The pair remained close to their families and often contacted home to give updates while they were on the run. Bonnie and Clyde eventually sought refuge at Methvin's family farm in Louisiana. But when law enforcement learned of their whereabouts, Methvin's father betrayed the famous outlaws in exchange for amnesty for his son. On May 23, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde were driving down a Louisiana back road when they saw Methvin's father standing by his broken down truck. Unbeknownst to them, a posse of officers were lying in wait. When Bonnie and Clyde stopped to help the elder Methvin, the police opened fire. The duo were killed in a hail of bullets. I find Clyde's story to be the embodiment of nature versus nurture. Clyde was born into a loving family and it wasn't until later in life and through horrendous experience that he turned into a killer. But what about those who haven't experienced trauma and still turn out to be killers? According to many crime psychologists, these are often the ones born with the personality disorders. A person that came to mind when researching killers without personality disorders was Britain's most hated woman, Myra Hindley. For three years, Myra Hindley and her partner in life and crime, Ian Brady, terrorised the children of Manchester. Cleverly using Myra as a trustworthy lure, being that she was female and alone, she would tempt unaccompanied minors into her car requesting them to help her look for a glove she had lost or assist with groceries. Once the child was in the car, Ian would follow behind on his motorbike. They would pull over by the Yorkshire Moors and the children would never be seen again. In one incident, a 10-year-old girl named Leslie Ann Downey was taken back to the home Brady and Hindley shared with her near-deaf mother. They used a sound recorder to capture her screams as they tortured her. In total, five children were killed and buried on the moors. To this day, the body of 12-year-old Keith Bennett has not been found. His mother went to her grave after a life of campaigning, never knowing what happened to her boy. Myra was born on the 23rd of July, 1942, in Crumpsall, a Manchester suburb with slum elements. Her father was away for her first three years because of the Second World War. He served in the Parachute Regiment in the North Africa campaign. So Nellie's mother lived with Myra and her grandmother helped raise her. When Bob returned home, 
grandmother moved out and around the corner. Bob went from being a para to doing menial labour work. He started to drink heavily. He also started to beat up his wife. But Myra's mother gave as good as she got and fought back. Often Myra's grandmother would have to break the two apart. After the birth of Myra's sister Maureen, it was Myra who was sent to live with her grandmother. Myra was just four years old. One thing her father did teach her was how to fight. And so, like her mother, Myra learned how to defend herself against males her own age. And when she beat a boy in a street fight, her father gave her the attention and approval she craved. She used her newfound street fighting reputation to protect not only herself, but also her little sister Maureen. It's thought, in a tragic irony, she also protected one of Maureen's friends, Pauline Reed. A decade later, Pauline would be the Moore's murderer's first victim. Myra was never diagnosed with a personality disorder, despite years of intense therapy while serving her life sentence. She presents a lot of characteristics of a sociopath, but her ability to fall head over heels in love with Brady and do the horrendous things they did together, regardless of whether she turned her back on him once they were jailed, suggests that she was more than capable of forming intense emotional bonds an us-versus-the-world agenda, if you will. She read Mein Kampf because of him. She morphed herself into his perfect woman. This is pretty fucked up, but many women with a weak sense of self do this all the time. But could you imagine becoming so wrapped up in your partner that you kill children for them? Nope. No. He could be as manipulative as the sky is blue, and if you make the choice to follow them down that path, there has to be something deeply wrong with you. In summary, I believe you can be born with all the tools to be a good person. But if your brain is wired wrong, you can still turn rotten. I also believe that truly good people can do truly terrible things when they are backed into a corner or hurt beyond repair. We can lose our empathy through experience. What do you think? Can people be born evil? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Loon Life, my darlings. This was actually a suggestion from my dear friend, Jeff. I am eternally grateful for how supportive you are of my creative endeavors and I love you madly. If you have enjoyed this episode, it would be very much appreciated if you would give us a five star on your favorite podcast app. Remember that you can keep up to date with me on Instagram at HarleyQ, H-A-R-L-E-I-G-H-Q, and also my like page on Facebook, also HarleyQ. Thanks again, and I'll have a new episode for you next week. This one is gonna be pride themed. Are you ready for love?